Hello everyone and welcome to the Yeoman Mitchell podcast. We're here to keep you up to date with legal and financial news that matters to you. I'm Joanne Bone and I'm a partner in our data protection team and I lead on data protection and privacy here at Urban Mitchell. I'm delighted to be joined by Graham Thompson who is the Chief Information Officer at Urban Mitchell. Hi Graham. Hi, um, Chief Information Security Officer of but thanks for promoting me. So I look after information security across the group, making sure that um, our organisation and its colleagues and clients' information are, are secure, but also leads our client-facing cyber health check or cyber audit practice. So obviously, um, data protection and cyber security have been in the news a lot lately. You'll undoubtedly have seen the big names that have been affected by breaches, such as British Airways, BBC and Boobs. Um, in addition to this, the cost of cybercrime is expected to top £9.3 trillion by 2025, which, to put it into context, equates to more than 75% of the UK's annual GDP. Schools, colleges and universities and other education organisations aren't exempt from this and certainly around 88% of educational institutions have reported some form of data breach or cyber attack in the last year. Information such as student passport details, special educational needs information, pay details and other highly sensitive and confidential documents have been stolen and even in some cases leaked online by organised criminal gangs. So it is very much a hot topic at the moment. So my first question to you, Graham, is what are the most critical cybersecurity risks facing business today and how can organisations effectively manage these risks? The biggest risks, the top cyber threats have been pretty much standard for, for a few years now. So uh, password stuffing, also known as brute forcing, is one of the biggest ones. Um, and that can be trying to get into your online sites, whether it's social media or um, if you're hosting sites for customers or clients, it's trying to get in there. You've then got phishing and fraud emails. So uh, phishing emails, very common. Everyone pretty much sees them. You'd have to be living in a cave not to have seen a phishing email at some point in your life. Uh, and they actually, they're the ones that can be very damaging financially. And the losses as a result of falling for a phishing and fraud email, they are far ahead of any other cybercrime losses by a country mile. The, the, the next one's cloud misconfiguration. So you know, over the last few years, many businesses, um, probably most, have been moving to some kind of cloud services because there's a huge amount of advantages to doing that. But one of the not so great sides is they are by nature public facing uh, websites and what have you. And if you configure them incorrectly, uh, whether by mistake or something has just been you know the, the the vendors have been a bit weak by default and, and there's a particular setting you didn't know to lock down uh, then that can create uh, a way in for cyber criminals 
traditional software being out of dates is is another one of the top risks and of course that gets exploited with things like ransomware which has uh, you know it's the biggest threat really by operational impact and lastly uh, you have uh, supply chain risk and that's something that we've seen very recently uh, particularly with uh, the the move issue uh, but there have been many others over the years where you, you've outsourced some elements of your operations and that supplier has been attacked and therefore you're affected as uh, uh, by proxy yeah i think i think that's really interesting um graham what you're saying about suppliers because certainly we've seen that cross our desk more and more and as you said it has been in news very recently i think outsource service providers that you mentioned like payroll or it uh, 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 you say are being targeted um because they're seen as a way in to clients so whilst an organization may be pretty comfortable with their security they may not be quite so switched on in relation to their suppliers or even understand what their suppliers have got and i think that's the problem in terms of using the suppliers as a weak link i think the other thing that's probably worth bearing in mind with people like that is one to sort of obviously understand your suppliers but also make sure that you've you've done what you need to do in relation to your suppliers obviously you'll have some views as to what you should be doing and and certainly from my point of view there are mandatory things that you've got to put in place when you've got a supplier from um, a uk gdpr point of view so the ico will expect and uk gdpr will expect that you carry out supplier due diligence so from our point of view that would look at both cyber issues um and also um data protection compliance and i'll, I'll ask you in a minute um Raymond, in terms of what, what your views on 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 the level of um, due diligence that people do and what your views are on on sort of cyber i think the other thing that's probably worth bearing in mind is that from a GDPR point of view, you've also got to have the right contract in place. So you do have to have a contract in place and you should be doing audit and potentially going back to your suppliers to renew your due diligence, you know, as, as things progress and as they're handling maybe more and more of your data. I think the, the one thing that I would say very much in terms of managing suppliers is whilst that may be seen as quite tedious and people don't really like doing it and it sort of prolongs the procurement process, it is quite important because if you don't get that right and you do have a data breach and you go to the ICO and they ask you whether you've done supplier due diligence or you've got the right contracts and things in place, they're going to take a pretty dim view if you haven't got that in place. And I think the final thing I would say about suppliers that people need to bear in mind is that if they are your processor, so they're doing something on your behalf, like an outsourced payroll provider or IT or something like that, is that they should not be communicating a data breach to the ICO. And I think a lot of people don't realise that. And we certainly have had the situation where people's outsourced suppliers have had a data breach themselves and they have notified the ICO on behalf of the controller and they are not meant to do that. And certainly I would strongly advise that in your contracts, you make it very clear as to whose responsibility that is. Because otherwise you've got a supplier that's saying all sorts of stuff to the ICO that may be wildly inaccurate in relation to how you're set up from a cyber point of view or what controls you've got in place as a business. And um, so I think from my point of view, you know, management of suppliers, both from a cyber point of view and also from the other things, all sort of mesh together um, to mean that you you know you're in the best position should you have a data breach. I mean, what is your view about the sort of due diligence and things in relation to um, suppliers from a cyber 
point of view, Graham, have you got any views as to, you know, do you think it's adequate what people do or what do you have a view as to what sort of things they probably should be asking? Um, well, it's it, it's a bit of a notorious element in uh, information security circles uh, because there can be a bit of a cottage industry in supplier risk management. So, so typically large organisations, particularly large regulated organisations like the banks will have big dedicated teams doing supplier risk and going into a lot of detail, including, you know, not just questionnaires, but including on-site audits and all that being written into the, the contracts. But it, it's have been on both sides of it where I've received third-party questionnaires and due diligence and audits, and then I've, I do them myself. You know, we, we do them on our suppliers. And a questionnaire being the very basic element of it is, is better than nothing. And as long as you get the, the questions relevant, there's a lot of questions you can ask, but what ones are you really worried about? What's What type of supplier is it? What type of data do they have or access to your systems? What are they actually doing for you? And that then depends, you know, what, what questions are relevant, what do you care about from a, from a risk point of view? It's not just about risk from a data protection point of view, but you've got risk from operational point of view and resilience and availability. You know, if that supplier is not available, doesn't matter what, why they were taken down, but if they were taken down, what's the impact on your business? That's that's another big factor to consider. And therefore, what business continuity do they have, not just from a security controls perspective. But you've then got the various tools, vendors provided tools that are set up for supplier risk management. And there's the, the, there's quite a few, I wouldn't name names, but there's there's quite a few that will automate the technical and it's a passive, it's not like a pen test, it's, it's a passive look at uh, a third party's digital footprint. And if they've detected any obvious weaknesses, things like websites being out of date, software being out of date, they can potentially look at things like hacker chatter or credentials that have been compromised. And, you know, Troy Hunt runs Have I Been Pawned? And you can link up with, with that service to find out if you as an organisation or others who are authorised to do it on behalf of, of, of other companies find out, you know, all, all of the details there. And so these uh, third party risk management tools, cyber risk management tools can give a additional element, make it a little bit more three dimensional on the risk profile of an organization. Because you can fill out a questionnaire, but it depends on how it's worded, you know, and if you ask in a yes or no answer, it, it only gives you so much. So these tools will give you a bit more of a realistic input uh, insight into the third parties. However, it is caveated that if that third party doesn't have a direct relationship with those vendors, and typically they, they, they want to, certainly not with all of them, they are they can be prone to misattribution. So they've scanned a the site, it's not very good, they've given it a bad score, and they've said that's that belongs to company X. Actually, it, it doesn't for various reasons. So you kind of got to look into it a little bit more. You can't just take any of those kind of scores that they give at face value. You really have to then engage with a third party to say, well, you know, what's your position on this? Is that correct? And then 
the total kind of in-depth point of view uh, from third party risk is to actually do uh, an audit, whether that's an initial audit as you onboard in a supplier or whether it's uh, something that you might do if they're high risk supplier uh, every year or every couple of years, whatever it is that you've you've got in the contract. And that's, you know, that's really going over and above and to, to, to the point where actually you're kind of helping that supplier be more secure because you're finding, potentially finding some uh, concerns, but you're telling them about it, maybe even helping them understand how they, how they can fix it. But it's certainly, it, there's quite a broad spectrum of it. Well, now, what would be lovely is if there was a standardized way, but, you know, like a SOC 2 report where you could say, okay, I've had a professional audit done. Here's my stamp of approval. Will everyone accept that? The reality is most don't. So again, it's it's something you'd ask for. Do you have a SOC 2? Have you got ISO, et cetera? And you go, brilliant. But actually, most organizations that, that do third-party risk assessment, they won't go, okay, that's brilliant. We can stop now. They, they'll still want to do their questionnaire and their audits and, and their analysis. So. I think it is a bit of a fraught um, sort of area, isn't it, in terms of what's appropriate? And I think horses for courses is certainly um, one thing that you know people need to think about. We we certainly see um, due diligence questionnaires that bear no resemblance to what's happening in terms of there's no consideration of the type of data and how sensitive it is or anything like that. So yeah, no, completely um, take on board what you're saying in terms of it's not the easiest area and it is a bit of a, a growth area. I think I think the key is to do something that's appropriate and tailored um, and sort of make sure it is appropriate. So it's not overdoing things, but equally, it's not just a quick tick box and uh, Bob's your uncle. And if you have a problem, you can show it to the ICO and go, didn't we do so well with this? Um, so I think it is it, it is a something that needs to be considered. And I think it's the, the point that we see a lot is is that whole supplier process it is seen very much as a tick box it's it's a complete pain to get through let's get through it as fast as possible tick a box and then everything's fine but i think as there's so many things when it comes to cyber or data it's not quite that simple i've got a question um for you um graham about sort of um cyber attacks and and things like that I and mean, obviously you know you were talking about the different sorts of cyber attacks that might happen it, they seem to be very complex these days and, and they always seem to be happening. They're very, very frequent. How can organisations sort of make sure that their cybersecurity strategy is up to date and effective in the face of the ever-changing situation in relation to cyber attacks? Yeah, good question, because it is a changing threat picture, but actually the frameworks to secure your organisation don't change that frequently. They don't, they don't really need to change that frequently simply because the evidence is that basic cyber security hygiene, so basic controls that have been around for many years, are effective at mitigating the majority of the risk. You know, it's it's, it's kind of fits with the Pareto principle. You know, twenty percent of your effort will uh, get you eighty percent of the benefits. And I think for for the basic cyber security controls, the percentages are actually much better, you know, potentially anywhere up to sort of in the 90s percent of reducing risk, uh, which is quite significant. You know, you, you're talking about if you have a, you know, a, a, a one year event of pushing that back 
decades rather than so and obviously cyber risk is more than a one-year event but uh you know you're really really reducing risk just by putting in some simple controls well i say the simple because this is my bread and butter obviously if you don't know what you're doing you, you need help there's plenty of help out there there's lots of uh, frameworks there's stuff from the national cyber security center um, there's lots of organizations that produce free free ad advice and then there's there's ones where you pay a, a small amount of money like iso uh, for help with various standards and policies and uh, as well as the controls but actually you know there's information out there for, for those that want to go looking for it being able to interpret it understand it and then implement it that's where the kind of the the, the skills knowledge comes into place what to tackle first but uh, typically you start with a, a risk assessment which is really looking at you know what's the key risks to your business from, from cyber security and therefore what are the controls to mitigate that and, and and initially you know if you've got nothing and you're starting off i think you probably find that most of the controls for good cyber hygiene are actually quick and easy to put in place and not necessarily costly either. In fact, many of them um, will not cost, you know, they're not products to buy. They are processes and they are things to switch on with the technology you already use. And um, so, Joanne, we've, you know, we've talked about ransom, ransomware attacks being uh, one of the biggest issues operationally to businesses. Uh, and obviously, from my point of view, uh, it, it's all about firstly putting the controls in place to, to prevent that from happening in the first place, but you can never say never. You want controls uh, to, to be able to recover if that ever happens. But but one of the things that's that's very pertinent and uh, you know get, gets mentioned a lot, particularly in the media, is paying the ransom. Now, le uh, law enforcement agencies will typically say don't pay the ransom. And I believe there are some countries where it might even have been made illegal. I'm not not sure about that. Um, so what what what's sort of your view from the, the you know from an ICO point of view? Should you pay the ransom? Shouldn't you? And if you do, what what what's the ICO going to say about that? I think that's really interesting, Graham, because um, not only um, you know is there a discussion in the press about it. Sometimes when you have a ransom attack, um, they will say actually if you pay it, as you find could be X. But if you pay us this smaller amount, actually, we're saving you money and you don't actually then you're not going to be subject to a fine, which which is not the case at all. Um, to be perfectly honest, in, in a nutshell, the answer is no, it does not improve your position with the ICO to pay the um, the ransom. And certainly they're very keen um, to make it clear that they don't take it as mitigation. Um, their view is that you still had a security failure. Um, you know, potentially someone has accessed your data or locked you out of your data. So you've either got an availability breach or you've got a confidentiality breach in relation to it. And the fact that they've said, you know, um, honest um, governor, if you pay us this amount of money, um, we won't make it available uh, publicly or on the dark web or we'll unencrypt it all. That's just not a guarantee in relation to the security of the data. You can't take it as being read that everything is fine. So their view is that um, they won't take it into consideration as mitigation. Um, the things that they say they do take into mitigation, you mentioned 
you know, the, the National Cyber Security um, Centre, they do say that engaging with them, following um, any advice that has been given by them or the guidance that's on their website, etc., is something um, that is taken into consideration in mitigation. Interestingly, one of the things that they've put out there recently is they're thinking of making it clear when they're talking about fines or where people have avoided fines, that in actual fact, this amount has been saved on the fine as a result of proper engagement with the proper people. Um, so it, 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 they very much take the view that definitely paying um, the ransom does not get you off the hook with the ICO. There are better ways um, to do that. Okay, oh, yeah, so that's interesting. So Graham, how can companies balance the need for strong security measures and the need in today's environment to keep pace from an innovation and agility point of view? Obviously, the landscape is very much an evolving um, situation today in terms of keeping pace um, economically. So, so what are your views? Is there a tension between that or, or do they sit hand in hand? So, uh, good, good question. And uh, I've been working in InfoSec for many years now, and I've seen the old school InfoSec many, many years ago, where you were kind of, uh, you know, the famous phrase is the Department of No, uh, because innovating, doing new stuff, risky, no, can't do that. Well, you know, that's just wrong. Uh, information security teams, they've got to enable the business to to grow, to operate, but to do so securely. So, so you want to, you also want to make sure that you're not human nature, right? If you make things too difficult for your colleagues, they'll either circumvent it, not because they're bad, but because they want to do the right thing for their role for the for the for the business. You also don't want uh, want them to be able, you want them to be able to approach you. You don't want them to put them off. So you want them. You want colleagues to come to you and say, right, we're looking at doing this, this new technology, this new process. How can we do it? Secure? You know, what's your security requirements for this? And you don't want them to think, oh, I'm going to I'm going to get a no again. You know, you want a reputation that you're going to work with the business and really help out. So there can be a bit of tension because sometimes some of these wonderful, massive vendors, uh, out there in, in in the world will come up with some things that they think is a great idea. They've worked very agile and they'll get it out into live, want to for organizations to, to purchase it and, and start using it. But they themselves haven't necessarily thought about security in, in a great way. Um, or, or privacy, you know, in your classic one is where there's a great service available, the data centers and the data processing is in say the US. Fine if you're in the US, but if you're in the UK, EU, you, you know, how, how do you cater for that? Now you can, but there's, there's, a, there's a process. And, and obviously it's simpler from that process point of view if, the, if you can use data centers in the UK or the EU and, 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 and you know, depends on which country you're in, there are other, uh, you know, other, other requirements and considerations for data residency. So that can be a tension. Luckily, I see particularly the, the, the big vendors like Microsoft much, much better at that. You know, they get it. They get that there's a data residency requirement um, and, and they're keen to, you know, push stuff out into other global data centers and be very visible and transparent about 
compliance and security. So that's great. And that's what you want to see. So innovation is really helped when the you know security compliance and privacy is very clear and you're not having to dig around. And you know, I remember the day when you know looking into a new a new system, you're having to search every corner of the web you're having to you know talk to people in that organization just to say you know what is your stance on security what do you do who can access the data whereas now typically a lot better because they realize it's a selling it's a selling point you know there will be customers that will say no if you can't prove uh, your security and, and your compliance so so I think you know part of the key to that is to have a really good relationship between your the security team and your your technical project delivery teams or your your tech innovation teams, all of that, so that you know everyone's at each other's uh, fingertips when when there is something that needs an assessment. And and depending on your depending on how your organisation set up, you, you know you, you, the, the the data protection. The DPIA side, you know, data protection impact assessment side. Sometimes that might be done within the security team. Sometimes uh, it might be within your your legal, your in-house legal teams. But whatever, however it's done, that's also then got to be a consideration because you might have a a new a bit of innovation. Maybe it's a new tool, but actually, if it's a new process that involves processing or using personal data you then requires uh, under GDPR to do a DPIA and make sure that that's that's correct. I think that's a really positive thing though, Graham, is that you see it as a positive in yeah. terms of understanding the technology, understanding the risks, understanding how to mitigate the risks, because I spend my life telling clients that DPIAs aren't a bad thing and that, you know, it means that the business understands what it's buying, it understands the new system, it understands what risks they've got and what they need to think about. So, you know, I've got to say, it makes me very happy that somebody's seeing it as a more of a, a positive thing than, oh no, something else that we've got to do before we can buy the software, um, which as I say, all the stuff around um, supply due diligence contracts and DPIAs are very much seen, I think. Um, you were saying that cybersecurity or information security is the department of no. I think, uh, um, data protection from a procurement point of view is seen as the um, department of no. Um, I think the other thing that I'd, I'd sort of follow up on is what you were talking about from a data export point of view, um, in that it is a nightmare. Obviously, there have been a lot of court cases. A lot of people will have heard of Schrems. There's recently been the big Facebook fine, and there's been what the Irish courts and regulators and, and stuff have been saying about um, essentially whether you can or can't export and, the, and how you might be able to export. I think the one thing that I would say by way of positive for anybody that is struggling with that with the suppliers um, is that both from an EU point of view and from a UK point of view, um, there is some movement in terms of um, essentially agreeing that data can go to the US in terms of there's, there's the idea of a transatlantic bridge um, from a UK um, perspective which has been announced I mean obviously the devil's in the details so we don't quite know what that'll involve now but you know if it is a, a a transatlantic bridge and if it's anything like it was before with safe harbor so um or privacy shield um then essentially you know it's likely to be I think and, and that's what's envisaged from an EU point of view that there'll be a register of American businesses that 
essentially meet the requirements and that you are able to contract with those without having to go through all the sort of hoo-ha of the standard contractual clauses, the UK addendum, the transfer impact assessment and the whole sort of shebang that makes it very difficult to export. So certainly I think in terms of supporting innovation, keeping data moving, um, I think the both the EU and the UK perspective in terms of the idea of this transatlantic bridge is a very positive um, thing. So fingers crossed it happens quite soon. So, so you know, as tech innovates and changes so frequently, that does the law, you know, does the law related to it, does it keep up? It, it does. And I think certainly from a data point of view, um, in particular, it moves very, very quickly. And I think that is very much driven by the technology that's behind it. As tech is moving, then the law has to evolve to sort of keep up with it. So obviously GDPR came into force in 2018 and the UK government post-Brexit is um, already legislating. Um, there is a bill that is in Parliament, going through Parliament relatively unopposed, where they are going to be changing um, some aspects of GDPR. Um, and, and their view is that that's there to support innovation and, and help um, the UK being obviously a, a sort of innovation powerhouse. I think in relation to the sorts of things um, that we're talking about, from a data breach point of view and from a cyber point of view, it doesn't change anything to any great degree. Um, it does something that is quite interesting in that if you have got data that you think is anonymous and therefore outside the data protection regime and you have a data breach so for example you've not got appropriate security in place so that you've been hacked um the fact that making that publicly available makes it actually no longer anonymous so you can identify people what you can't do they've made it absolutely clear now that what you won't be able to do is to go oh well, when we had it it was anonymous so it wasn't personal data so we don't need to report a data breach what they're basically saying is if it was likely that if it were hacked that it would become um it wasn't anonymous anymore that you can't hide behind that anymore which sounds a bit technical but i do think it's an interesting thing in terms of really making sure that you've got the appropriate protections both for your personal data but also to data that you think is anonymous you can't just decide that you're having you know that that's outside the realms of what you need to think about from a sort of cyber point of view in terms of the things that are probably a bit more impactful um for um, organizations and schools and colleges uh, there'll be a relaxation of the cookies regime um so there'll be certain cookies that can be dropped without um, consent because it's quite difficult at the moment from a cookies point of view in terms of identifying you can only have um, essentially essential cookies that you can drop without consent but there's going to be a list of other cookies that you can drop without consent to make things um, so that organisations can collect data a bit more easily and obviously they're not particularly the idea is that they're not essentially um, cookies that are going to collect a lot of really sensitive data but it's just ways in, in terms of you know maybe looking at how the website might be working. So there's a list of those. Um, rules around automated decision making are going to be relaxed, which is an interesting one. And again, the idea is that that will pave the way for more machine um, decision making. Um, so sometimes we see people who might use that in the context of recruitment and stuff like that. Um, and it's quite difficult at the moment to do that. And that will be opening that up, which um, certainly, as you can imagine, um, it's quite contentious in terms of from privacy campaigners. I'm not massively keen on that, but it, it is an interesting development to see how that works. 
Well, that's um, a bit um, with the, the explosion in generative AI. That's one area where, you know, automated decision making, but it's, you know, there's a lot of use cases there and, it, and the tool is, you know, the tools themselves are very powerful in the sense that you know being able to do logical reasoning so you know if you were if you were for example to take a cv and and say to the model without even any training say you know extracts this information judge it against this criteria and tell me whether i should interview or not so so you're saying that that's actually going the other way that it's going to be easier to do that yeah right wow and I think it is a bit of paving the way. Obviously, AI is a whole topic which we could have a whole new sort of session on um, in terms of that. And, and, and obviously, it's in its very early stages of regulation. I think, as you say, relaxing this and making that sort of thing available to people in terms of you can make recruitment decisions. Um, I think it is paving the way for more use of, of AI in business. So I think that's very much a, an interesting um, development that's for sure you know AI has been something that's used in cyber security for, for quite a few years now and it, and it is extremely useful it, you know it's it's a massive game changer it makes definitely makes things uh, more secure decisions happen quicker because they're automated um, and I think it's only had a positive effect on the industry you know there's still more jobs out there than there are people to fill them. Um, so yes, yeah, so that's going to be a really interesting development. And I think from a regulation point of view, there's obviously, you know, lots of talk about AI regulation, which will fit in, I'm, you know, I'm sure with data protection and the security elements as well. So that's, that's definitely one to watch. Yeah, I think I think from both our point of view, I think the development of AI and what happens with AI and and how it's used um, is going to be something that undoubtedly we'll be talking about um, in the not so distant future. You know, is it is it going to be terminated to type territory or is it going to be something that's beneficial, as you were saying, in terms of being able to make very quick decisions in relation to um, information security? So we've talked a lot about technology, Graham. Obviously, there is the human element as well. And employees. So, what role do you think employees have got in relation to cyber security in terms of obviously from both the shop floor to the boardroom? And um, what do you think that companies should be doing in terms of how to engage employees and how to promote a culture of security awareness throughout their business or organisation? Well, employees play a crucial role in cyber security. They're they're often the first and potentially strongest line uh, of defence against the threats. Uh, they can also be one of the biggest weaknesses, though, I, whether it's you know by negligence, which which is uh, you know non-malicious um, activities, which tends to be the most common one, um, or in rare cases where, where malicious insiders are, are involved. But you know, in, in, in a nutshell. Uh, all colleagues, all, all employees have really have got to be made aware of their security responsibilities in their day to day work and um, through security awareness and regular training. Um, and you want to foster a culture of openness and trust so so that people feel 
comfortable reporting mistakes, potential breaches, incidents. You know, they 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 won't feel uh, that you know it puts them in an awkward position. They want to cover it up. You know, that's that would be the worst thing. So you want to foster a really good relationship with everyone. Um, make uh, ensure everyone understands the lines of communication. You know, how do you report an incident? How do you ask for help? Where do you get training? Um, and, and doing all of that. And really, you want to get to a point where it's like crossing the roads, right? You want people that are doing the job. They're going to do something. They're going to send an email with sensitive data. They're going to work on a project. Uh, they're going to engage with, with a, a customer or a client. And just at the back of their mind, they've got security risk assessment. You know, security risk is what I'm doing within policy sensible, you know, is there anything silly or am I seeing anything that is risky and dangerous or just not quite right? So you just want to foster that that education and that openness. I think that's interesting um, in relation to, as you say, uh, openness and the fact that people feel that they can own up to their mistakes because there's certainly nothing worse from my point of view in terms of managing the data breach. If there's been an employee situation and they've covered it up, because as it covers up, obviously it expands and expands and expands. And certainly we have had situations where employees have, have not felt that they're able to go to the business and tell them about it. And it, it's just got worse and worse and worse. And the financial ramifications of it have got worse and worse and worse. And obviously, from an ICO point of view, you, you've only got a short time period in which to report. So, you, you know, you've got your 72 hour window Um employees covering things up is, is super unhelpful in relation to things like that. So I think people being comfortable with coming forward is very positive um, so that you can, one, shut it off. So obviously from a technical point of view, you need to make sure it's not happening anymore, but also from an ICO point of view, um, making sure that, you know, you're managing it um, properly. And I think the other thing that we see, and I know that we're talking about sort of cyber and stuff today, but really simple mistakes and um, people need to be aware of as well so we see people sending printing to a printer and sending it to the wrong printer and then you know maybe everybody's payroll is being printed out um in the wrong place and suddenly somebody can see that or you know photocopying people the number of times we have people leaving sensitive information on a photocopier and and, and we see the sort of ramifications of that so i think i would completely echo what you said about making sure that everybody understands but I think um as you say it's not just sort of people being aware in terms of are they sending the email to the right person you know are they making sure they're not providing their password details or clicking on links but it's also old school stuff as well and I think people sometimes forget that um you know old school paper data can actually um, cause a problem as much as anything else and and, and do you often see employees that cause data breaches yeah we we do as i say we we, we see people who we, we see um, employees clicking on links a lot um which i'm sure that uh, you would echo that people notwithstanding the training will do daft stuff and will still click on links so we had a situation where um somebody clicked on a dropbox link that wasn't a dropbox link as you can imagine um, notwithstanding the fact um, that they had been trained on not doing things like that. Um, as I say, we do see the old school sort of paper stuff. I think the thing that I would say in relation to employees and managing risk, one is the point you were making about making sure you've got policies, procedures, but also that they're embedded and people know what they're meant to be doing and that it's open enough to be able to 
sort of um, essentially it, it's an open situation so they will tell people about it but also training um, where it's an employee data breach the one thing that the ICO will not the one thing but one of the things that the ICO will be very keen to know is what training have they had so I think keeping a record of the training that they've had both from an information and cyber point from information security and cyber point of view but also from a data protection point of view so that you can say well actually they were trained they've had it refreshed on this particular day we've got training records and I think that's something else that people sometimes don't do I mean obviously if it's sent out electronically the training and stuff we can check who's logged on and who's trained and whatever but sometimes people don't track who's trained so they have a data breach and we say well can you say that joe blogs was trained and can you tell us when and they're like oh no we don't keep training records so i think things like that training very very positive but yeah and, and i think as long as you you've set yourself up as being an organization that generally these things are dealt with properly and it's one of those things then the ICO is relatively sympathetic to it they know employees will do um you know things that are unpredictable um but as long as it's out of character you've done the training you've got the policies and procedures that you've got a way of dealing with it then generally they are um as I say they're relatively sympathetic um to it so yeah employees um we see a lot of data breaches caused by employees so finally, Graham, I'd be interested in your views as to what do you think is best practice for carrying out regular cybersecurity assessment and audit, and how can organisations use the information to improve their security posture? Um, yeah, thank you. It's a, it's a good one. And I think where, where things start for me, you know, when I go into an organisation, uh, one of the first things I do as part of the, the security strategy is, is set up a controls framework, which I then test against. And you can, you know, the, the, there's various uh, international standards that you can use. You could just pick one, like ISO 27001 and, and the controls in two. You could uh, take the National Cyber Security Centres good practices, so, you know, they used to call it 10 steps to cyber security. And there's a NIST one, there's there's all sorts. There's even one, um, I can't remember what it's called, but it's got about a thousand controls in it. So you can go from everything from fairly simple to the very, very complex. And I think if you're, if you're a, a smaller organization where you don't have dedicated people, or you maybe have one person, but they, they, they need a bit of help, then you know what a really good process is is to look at particularly the top hitting basic cyber hygiene controls um which uh, you can get from various sources um openly like uh like national cyber security center um microsoft also has uh, an angle on it based on the the metrics that they see and there's there's various others one more slightly more complicated one is the, the CIS, the Centre for Internet Security, um, who have a, a very complex control framework, but they also include in it what are the, the hard hitting basics. So whether you do that yourself or whether you get someone to help um, to help bring that in, that's typically can be as basic as a spreadsheet with the control and then a, a kind of answering system of 
is it in place? Yes, no, partially. You know, is it comprehensively? You can either do it like that, or you can do a maturity assessment based on um, the kind of maturity model, you know, one to five basis. And once you've done that, that assessment based on your, uh, your, your, your key infrastructure, your most important systems, um, you, you produce this kind of heat map of what's in place, what's not in place, or what's mature, what's not mature. And that then informs you what you should tackle first, fix. Um, by, look at, by looking at that, you know, they, they, those basic controls will mitigate the main standard risks. So, you know, ideally you should do a risk assessment in your, your organization to begin with to say, you know, what, what's actually at risk? Are we, have we got internet facing websites? Have we got a lot of uh, uh, online login systems for, for colleagues? And, and they, you know, do we, do we use our own IT infrastructure? Is that outsourced? You want to look at all of that. What's your digital footprint? But even if you weren't to do that, even if you thought that's a bit of a step too far for us, just, just tell me the key controls we, we can assess and put in place. You know, most organizations will face the same kind of cyber risks and therefore the basic controls will just as a generic package will mitigate the vast majority of that risk. And then once you've done the basics, you can then do the more complicated stuff if you want to then further reduce risk to the absolute the absolute minimum and that's then you know you don't do that once that's an ongoing process so you might do phase one get the basics in place get the the controls assessment done implement the gaps and then a year after you know a year of your implementation do it again check what your position is, what then do you want to further improve? And you, you can keep doing that. And, and potentially you then get to a you get to a point where you're just doing this kind of continual assessment and maintaining uh, the level that you're comfortable with as a business. So that's all for today. Thanks, Graham. If you'd like help with your cybersecurity, then we offer a special cybersecurity package. Um, which helps businesses comprehensively audit their key hygiene facts and preventing up to 98% of known security risks. If you'd like more information on this, either connect with me or Graham Thompson on LinkedIn or head to the Owen Mitchell website. Thank you very much for joining us.